You're listening to Preach the Word with David Ryu, Sermon Archive. Lord of all grace, have mercy on us today, not because we are worthy of your mercy, not because we have sufficiently obeyed your law, but have mercy on us, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out our transgressions. Do not remember the sins of our youth and our rebellious ways, but according to your love, remember us, for you, Lord, are good. For the sake of your name, Lord, forgive our iniquity, though it is great. We take delight in this truth. Our hearts are more evil and more wicked than what our accusers and enemies can say. Yet the blood of Christ has washed us whiter than snow. We hold on to your promise that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Lord, as we have been justified by your grace, help us now to live your grace and strive for holiness in life. Help us to live a life worthy of the calling and leave our old ways behind. As we incline our ears to the preaching of your word, we ask for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Awaken us from our slumber and set aflame our hearts with holy affections and holy convictions that lead to holy living. All this we pray in the name above all names, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, let us continue in our sermon series through the book of Ephesians. Please open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 5, 3 to 7. Hear the word of the Lord. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Amen. This was the reading of God's word. If you've ever seen a pack of cigarettes, you'll notice on it there are graphic images of stained teeth, black lungs, or a hole in the throat. And in big scary letters, there are warnings written on the package telling you of the possible diseases and cancers you can develop from smoking. 
According to the Tobacco Products Control Act, all tobacco products sold legally in Canada are required to have a health warning label. And over the years, they have become quite creative. Earlier this year, Health Canada has announced that warning labels will now also be printed directly on each individual cigarette. One example of a label on a cigarette reads, poison in every puff. All of these efforts are in the hopes of deterring people from smoking because it is proven to be detrimental to the health of the smoker and to those exposed to secondhand smoking. You see, the purpose of a warning is, first of all, to educate you on the right or wrong course of action, and then to inform you of the possible danger you're exposed to if you choose the latter. A warning functions well if it scares you and deters you from making the wrong choice that could harm you. And our passage today is essentially a warning. The Apostle Paul wants to scare the hell out of us, literally. Or perhaps it's more accurate to say that he wants to scare us out of hell. You might have already guessed, but let me just tell you plainly that you can expect this sermon to press on the boundaries of your comfort zone. Yet, I cannot apologize for it because this is the Word of God. And we're simply going where the text shall take us. When we come across a strong warning or admonition in, in the New Testament, it can cause great discomfort. Perhaps you will be confronted and convicted of your sin. Perhaps you will be given a challenge to go against the current of culture. However, biblical warnings provide wisdom for the mind, guidance for the soul, and a healthy dose of fear for the wayward heart. And so, in all humility, let us be most attentive to the Apostle's warning in the inspired text before us. And may it be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. His warning is broken down as so. In verses 3 to 4, Paul lays out what is the proper and the improper conduct for Christians. Then in verses 5 to 6, he tells us of the frightening consequences of disobedience. And then finally in verse 7, he gives us further instruction to maintain purity. Let's first look at what is the proper and the improper conduct for Christians. Paul writes in verse 3, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual Immorality. It's interesting to note that sexual immorality usually makes a top spot in Paul's list of sins and vices. 
In Colossians 3, Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. In Galatians 5, Paul writes, The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, and idolatry. Obviously, sexual immorality was a major issue during Paul's time in the first century, as it continues to be a pervasive issue today. Moreover, it seems that it was not just the people outside the church that were engaging in this sin, but Christians from within the church were just as much prone to committing sexual immorality. That's precisely why Paul felt it was necessary to offer a stern warning against it. Paul is acutely aware of what's going on in the church. He is not aloof. He is not disconnected from the congregation. He understands the reality that Christians face intense temptations from Satan's artillery. He knows. Nevertheless, Paul makes no compromise. He maintains that there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality among God's redeemed people. Not even the slightest trace of it should be found. The Greek word translated here as sexual immorality is porneia. And from the Greek word porneia, we get the English word pornography. Porneia is a word used in the New Testament to refer to all forms of sexual misconduct. This includes adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, sexual fantasies, and any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. Let me be clear, very clear. Sex is not a bad thing. God created us to be sexual beings with sexual desires. However, when we distort God's good purpose and design for sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife in the covenant of marriage, we sin against God. Sexual immorality is essentially a rejection of God's authority and asserting ourselves above God. Consider this recent survey that suggests over 50%, over 50% of self-proclaimed Christians believe that casual sex outside of marriage is acceptable. It's acceptable. Well, according to who? According to you or according to God? They might say, well, my boyfriend and I, we really love each other. We will get married in the future anyway. But God has no category for boyfriend-girlfriend. He permits only husband and wife to engage in a sexual relationship. That's his design. They might say, well, times have changed. We live in a different era from when the Bible was written. This is ancient stuff. 
But God's word is universal. It is transcultural. The Bible is absolutely relevant to you and to me today. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul tells us plainly, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, and that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. You see, sex is a gift from God. And because God created it, He alone has the right to define its parameters. Anything outside the parameters He gave, He considers it treason. Studies show that 77% of all Christian men, I'm talking Christian men, look at pornography at least monthly. And 55% of all married Christian men look at pornography at least monthly. This is reality. And of course, pornography is not just an issue for men. But one-third of all internet porn users are women. Perhaps it's easier to justify watching pornography and masturbating because you're not being physical with someone else, with another person. But Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, it is not enough to maintain physical purity. The fight for purity begins with the eyes and with the mind and in the heart. Pornography is satanic discipleship and it trains us to seek self-gratification at the cost of objectifying and using people created in the image of God for your self-pleasure. If you want to be free from pornography, if you want to pursue sexual purity, it's going to be a hard-won fight. It's going to be a fight. We are at war with the passions of the flesh. The devil prowls around like a lion looking to devour you. And the world does not sleep from trying to entice you. It will not rest. Dear Christian, you must pick up the sword. Pick up the sword of the Holy Spirit and cut off the head of the serpent. Do you lack the courage to fight? Do you lack the motivation? Then you do not realize what's at stake. Paul says in Romans 8:13, "For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live." The Puritan John Owen puts it this way, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. 
Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. So fight. Fight as if your life is on the line. Fight for your soul. Fight for the sake of your marriage. Fight for the sake of Christ. Jesus demands that we be extreme in slaying our lusts. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown in hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your whole body than for your whole body to go into hell. Of course, Jesus is not advocating for self-mutilation. He's not. He has already said that adultery is not just a matter of the eyes or of the hand, but of the heart. Jesus is using exaggeration to express how committed he wants us to be in killing sin. Pastor John Piper offers six helpful strategies to fight lust. To remember the six steps, he uses the acronym ANTHEM. The first step is A for avoid. Avoid all situations that might cause you to be tempted. Avoid all sexually explicit content that will tempt you. This is a biblical strategy. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 tells us, flee, flee from sexual immorality. And Romans 13, 14 says, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Cut off the source. The second step is N for no. Saying no to every lustful thought. When a lustful thought enters your mind, don't ponder on it, but cut it off right away. If you let your mind linger on these thoughts for more than a few seconds, it's too late. Say no immediately in the name of Jesus. The third step is T for turn. Turn away from the empty promises of lust and turn to Christ. Sin promises you joy, but it will only leave you more broken. But think about Christ. Think about his beauty, his majesty, his glory. Think about your favorite praise songs and Bible verses that will help you think about Christ. The fourth step is H for hold. Hold the promises and pleasures of Christ firmly in your mind until your lustful thoughts fade away. Don't let your mind wander, but continue to focus on Christ and exert all your strength to fix your eyes on Him. The fifth step is E for enjoy. Enjoy the superior satisfaction found in Christ. One reason lust is so appealing to us is because we don't find Christ appealing enough. 
But the pleasures to be found in Christ is so much better, so much better than temporary and fleeting pleasures of lust. God wants you to enjoy the gift of sex to the fullest in the context of a loving marriage as he intended. It is Satan who wants to rob you of that joy. The final step is M for move. Move yourself into another space or activity. Lust grows fast in the garden of leisure. Find work to be done. Go outside for a walk. Call a Christian friend. Call me. I'll pray for you. But do not stay idle. Charles Spurgeon once said, idle men tempt the devil to tempt them. The war against sexual immorality will be lifelong. It will be lifelong. Temptation will always be lurking and waiting for an opportune time. But it can be weakened. It can be starved like a lion in a cage. Do not feed it. Do not play with it. But keep it locked up and stay far, far away. Well, in addition to sexual immorality, Paul continues in the second half of verse 3 of our passage. He says, Any kind of impurity or of greed are improper for God's holy people. Pastor John MacArthur comments, This verse shows the close connection between sexual sin and other forms of impurity and greed. An immoral person is always inevitably greedy. Adam and Eve had everything they needed in the garden. Everything. But they took and ate the forbidden fruit because they were deceived into thinking God was withholding something good from them. You see, greed is unbelief in God's promise of provision. It is a form of self-worship. We place ourselves above God, our desires above God, our will above God, our pleasures above God. And the greedy man takes and takes and takes and takes, but is never satisfied. Sexual immorality and impurity can never truly satisfy the soul. The greedy man is obsessed with filling the belly of his lusts, but he fails to realize that true and lasting satisfaction is only ever found in God. He has been deceived. But the Christian, the Christian must identify the greed in their hearts and kill it immediately. Cut off its head. We must not let it fester or else it will turn into a black hole that will swallow up everything, including your own soul. Especially to the singles among us today, I tell you, do not 
covet what God has not yet given you. You can desire, certainly, to find a partner to get married, but do not let that desire consume you. Remember that the emptiness and void that you experience cannot be filled by anything other than Christ. Covetousness only amounts to idolatry. It is idolatry. And such greed is improper for God's holy people. Furthermore, Paul writes in verse 4, Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Our actions must be pure. Our hearts must be pure. And now Paul says our speech, our words must be pure. Corrupt speech is a reflection of a defiled mind. Like a virus, it infects and defiles others who hear it. Dirty talk and dirty humor is inconsistent with the character of God. We must conform our language, our humor, to the holiness of God. When Christians swear, when Christians use vulgar language and engage in inappropriate humor, it is a sign of spiritual immaturity. It is a sign of spiritual immaturity. It is carelessness. If they try to justify their corrupt speech, they only show that they are proud. There is simply no excuse. Cut the swearing, cut the cussing, cut the crude joking. Now, that's the command, not from me, from God. Think about this. Even godless politicians, secular godless politicians, carefully choose their words when they are representing their country, their nation then how much more, how much more carefully should Christians choose their words when they are representing their holy God? Paul says we must replace our corrupt speech with thanksgiving and praise. The language of the redeemed is language that honors God Whenever we speak, we must be mindful of God. Fear God. Now, let us see what the apostle says about the frightening consequences of disobedience. Paul writes in verse 5 to 6, For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, 
For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Lest there be any confusion at all, Paul makes it abundantly clear. He says, we can be sure, we can be certain about the fate of the disobedient. We can be certain. They will miss out on the kingdom of God. They will miss out on the everlasting joy and peace under the reign of Christ. And due to their unrepentance, they will incur the full fury of God's wrath in hell. But Paul is not saying, hear me, Paul is not saying that you have to be a perfect person who never struggles with these sins in order to have right standing with God. That's not what he's saying. That would be self-righteousness, works righteousness. That's not the gospel that Paul preaches. If you read Paul's warning here in isolation from the rest of the letter to the Ephesians, you can end up with a very distorted gospel. But context is king. Context is king. In just the preceding verses, verses 1 and 2, Paul addresses his readers as dearly loved children. Dearly loved children of God for whom Christ died to redeem and to forgive. And in the first two chapters of Ephesians, Paul has already established that sinners are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. A sinner is adopted as God's child by grace, and they shall remain God's child by grace. We don't lose our salvation every time we sin. We don't. There is no indication in the Bible that we lose our salvation every time we sin. And we don't earn back our salvation by our good works. I mean, we never earned our salvation to begin with. That's a relief. That's a relief. You cannot enter the kingdom of God on the basis of your sexual purity or your conduct or your behavior, but only on the basis of Christ and his faithfulness to you. Nevertheless, Paul's warning here has a definite purpose. It should scare you and it should deter you from disobedience. If you hear the warning and it has no effect on you at all, then it exposes that you have no real concern for holiness, no real faith in Christ, and no real love for God. You're not a Christian. 
If you hear the warning and you remain in your sin and you do not put up a fight, then it exposes your unrepentance and your allegiance to the world over God. You're not a Christian. And you can be sure of this. Such a person will not inherit the kingdom of God. They might call Jesus their Lord, but on the last day he will tell them plainly, I never knew you. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoer. That's what he will say. I hope that scares you. And I hope that deters you from disobedience. On the other hand, if you hear the warning and you are convicted to change, you are determined to kill your sin, and you are emboldened to follow after Christ, that is evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, and you prove to be a child of God. A true Christian cannot make peace with their sin. Though they might fall in moments of great weakness, their deepest longing is to become more like their Savior every single day. And they press on toward the goal. As Martin Luther once said, all of the Christian life is lived in repentance. The whole of the Christian life is lived in repentance. That is our life. And biblical warnings like this serve as a gracious means from God to preserve the saints. They are like guardrails on the narrow road of faith, keeping Christians from falling into the pit. You see, the Bible is like a love letter from God to his children. And because he loves us, he gives us warnings and admonitions to direct us onto the right path and to keep us from self-destruction and danger. Now, let us look at Paul's further instruction to maintain purity in verse 7. He writes this, Because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. This is not a command. This is not a command to disassociate with all unbelievers. It's not. Rather, the command is to disassociate from the sinful lifestyle of unbelievers. That's how Christians are to maintain their purity. Do not participate in their sins. Do not engage in their acts of sensuality. Do not think like them. Do not talk like them. Do not dress like them. Do not be partners with the worldly and the godless. And I say this with love, not with condemnation and judgment. I say this with love 
Do not make them your romantic partners. If you have a problem with that, then take it up with Paul. Elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, he says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Of course, we should love all people, unbelievers, and even our enemies. But can we be in a romantic relationship with them? You see, the believer and the unbeliever is spiritually incompatible. Spiritually incompatible. They might be nice. They might be good-looking. They might be rich. They might have a lot in common. But they do not serve the same master. And they do not share the same purpose, the same goal of glorifying God. And the more intimate you are with unbelievers, the more attached you become to them, the more likely you will compromise your purity. So then, as I close my sermon, I want to say a word to those who have already compromised, already compromised their purity or carry the heavy load of their sexual brokenness. I want to speak to you. No matter how far you've gone, no matter how dirty you might feel, you are never, ever out of the scope of God's grace. There is full redemption. There is full restoration for you. There is. Come to Jesus today. He wants you to come to him. Come with your past. Come with your addictions, your brokenness. Come with your struggles. You don't need to clean up your mess before you come to him. He already knows the worst of what you've done. And he already knows the worst of what you're capable of. Yet, he will not reject anyone who comes to him with a broken and contrite spirit. That's a promise. Charles Spurgeon beautifully describes what Jesus can do for you. He says, There may be some sins of which a man cannot speak, but there is no sin which the blood of Christ cannot wash away. Friends, the Son of God was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He has paid the debt of sin on the cross for all who would trust in him. He has triumphed over death and all other forces of evil. And he has established his kingdom and reigns forever. So come, come to King Jesus in faith with a broken and contrite spirit and receive all his benefits.
be pardoned for all of your sins, be cleansed by his blood, and receive your inheritance of the kingdom of God. Let us pray. Lord, we come to you with our mess, with our brokenness. What can we say to the charges against us? None of our sins are hidden from you. We are more guilty than we can confess. And yet, in Jesus Christ, you love us more than we can imagine. We repent and we long to be refreshed and find full assurance of pardon by the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.